listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, just stick your hand up. Uh, one of the ushers will, uh, will bring a Bible to you. That's yours. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that. We want you to have God's Word in your hand. So Luke uh, chapter 5, uh, verses 27 to 32 are, are the basis for this text, for this sermon this morning. And Luke writes, After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made, a, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you, God, that you have spoken to us through your word, that we know who you are and who your son is by your word. Father, we thank you that you used to speak in, in, in the past, in, in your old covenant through your prophets, you revealed yourself to them, but you revealed yourself darkly. We, we didn't see you clearly, but you have spoken to us in these last days through your son, Jesus. And by Jesus, we see who you are. We see the fullness of who you are. He is the exact representation of your being. Father, we thank you. For sending your son. We thank you for all that Jesus is, for how he lived perfectly, how he died and satisfied your wrath against our sin. Father, we come here this morning, we gather to hear your word. Father, we pray that your word, that word that formed the universe, that word that John says is your son. God, we pray that that word would transform us, would open eyes, God, that it would, it would create life where death exists. We pray these things, Father, knowing and believing that you are powerful and mighty, that you are still at work saving people, making people alive to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So one day last fall... I found myself on a mud step in eastern Africa with a ball of white starch and this cooked leafy green mixture of some kind of herb that they called mustard on the side of my plate. And we were building a structure where a brand new church plant would meet. And I use the term we pretty loosely here. It was really they who built this thing. We were just sort of along for the ride. Mostly, we watched, myself and another pastor who were over there, 
as, uh, as the church members stood poles, laid rafters, and purlins, tied them down with string. They let us actually tie some of the bark in a couple of places so that we, we felt like we were doing something. But after all this building was done, one or two of the three Christian women, I think, that were in that church, I mean, it was, it was just the very beginnings of a church plant. There was one woman who, <clears throat> who really formed the basis of this church plant. And while we were there, two other women had been converted. After all of this uh, building was done, I found myself, myself on the steps of this woman's mud hut with two white brothers, uh, myself and the pastor that went with us and uh, another missionary that was over there and a host of black nationals, um, some believers, some unbelievers. None of them spoke a word of English and we were all sharing chima. This, that's what they called this ball of, of cornstarch that we were eating. And, we, and mustard greens. And though we were separated by language and culture, we shared a meal together. And though we couldn't understand one another, the meal created a bond, a connection, an intimacy that transcended culture and language. And I want to say this morning that fellowship is the currency of meals shared together. Fellowship is the thing that characterizes meals shared together. Just like money is the currency of business, fellowship is the currency of meals shared together. This week, as I start my half of the series that Melvin and I are preaching through, entitled Miracles and Meals with Jesus, we will focus on meals that Jesus had with people throughout the book of Luke. And one, one writer has said about the book of Luke that Jesus was either coming from, or you, you can look at the whole book of Luke and read it through this lens, that Jesus was either, was either coming from a meal with somebody, or he was going to a meal with somebody. So let, let me start by asking you a question. If you were to complete the statement... The Son of Man came, All right, that's not very many words there, but if you were to try and complete that statement, what would you, what would you say? How, how would you complete it? How would you end it? Well, the, the gospel writers, they use this statement three times in, in the gospels. And in two of, the, um, two of the uses, they give us a reason. Jesus they answer, why did Jesus come? Matthew and Mark complete this statement by telling us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke uh, completes this statement in, uh, in one place by saying that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. These are both purposes, right? The why, why did Jesus come? But Luke also tells us how Jesus came. In Luke 7.34, we read that Jesus came, the Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors 
and sinners. Luke tells us that Jesus came eating and drinking. The first two describe the goals of Jesus' mission, to seek and save the lost and to give his life as a ransom. But this last statement describes the way that Jesus was going to accomplish this mission. This is his mission strategy. It's very strange. I'll be honest, I find Jesus' description of his mission strategy kind of funny. We, We get all serious about what Jesus has done on the cross, and rightly so. And then Jesus tells us that the way he's going to get this message out is by partying with people. That's how he's going to do it. That's how he's going to accomplish his mission. Now, don't get all bent out of shape. This doesn't undermine the cross. It's true that the way Jesus saves people is by going to the cross and dying in the place of sinners. He takes their sins. He gives them his righteousness. This is the great exchange. His righteousness for our sins. But that that, that truth doesn't detract from the fact that Jesus brings his people into the kingdom by eating and drinking. And along the way, he does enough of that to be accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. You have to drink and eat a lot to be accused of those things. John, they they said in that same passage that John didn't eat or drink, and and they said that he was possessed by a demon. Jesus comes eating and drinking, and they call him a glutton and a drunkard. You have to eat a lot and drink a lot to get that name. That's... They don't just hand that out for nothing. Jesus didn't come with complex strategies. He didn't teach evangelism classes. He didn't start a children's ministry or a men's ministry or a women's ministry. He didn't start a seminary. He didn't make his message seeker-sensitive. He didn't try to lure people with the promise of ease or security or riches or power or fame. He didn't change his message at all. In fact, he was was a little bit confrontational. And his message was a little bit offensive. At least the Pharisees found it offensive. And while he was here to die for the sins of his people, that's why he came He ate and drank with sinners. That was what he did. That was his strategy. That was the way that he was going to reveal God's plan, his kingdom on earth. He came, he ate a lot of meals, he drank a significant amount of wine, and he shared the good news with anyone who was ready to listen. It didn't matter who they slept with the night before or what political party they belonged to or what nationality they were or what was in their bank account or what gender or profession or age or class they were part of. He ate with everyone, no preferences, no favoritisms, no exceptions, no partiality. That was how Jesus came. That is 
how he accomplished his mission. (laughs) This morning, I want us to go away from here understanding, deeply understanding Jesus' methodology for proclaiming, for telling the world about his kingdom. I want you to know why his strategy was so counter-cultural. This was a different way of doing things. Why it was so effective and why it's still the right way. Today, why it's still the right way to accomplish his mission. So meals mark borders. To understand why this is so and what the consequences are, we need to start with a little bit of history, specifically with Israel's history. The Jewish food laws that we read about in the New Testament and the Old Testament are rooted in Old Testament scriptures that regulate the habits, the eating habits of the Jews. Leviticus gives us two categories. There's clean and there's unclean animals that can be, clean animals can be eaten, unclean animals cannot be eaten and must be avoided. And at the time of Jesus, these things were still in effect. Throughout Jesus' entire life, these things were still in effect. Another important historical piece of information is that during the time about which Luke is writing, that period of, you know, where Jesus is living, Israel is an occupied state. Since the Assyrian, like going all the way back to 721 BC, uh, when the Assyrians invaded northern Israel and took northern Israel captive, since that point, there, Israel has been occupied by a foreign nation. The Babylonians took uh, Judah in 605 BC, and, for, and forever after that, Israel was occupied by a, a foreign nation. And though the Jews had returned to the land of Israel, God had not yet returned to his people. Ezekiel chapter 10 gives us a picture of this temple, and Ezekiel is very very careful or carefully describes God leaving the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. He turns his back on the nation of Israel. It's a momentous event in the life of Israel. And and there's no point at which God returns except when Jesus arrives on the scene. With Jesus, God returns to the temple. Israel, though, doesn't know that. Israel is still waiting for a deliverer. The nation is expecting that the promised Messiah would come and deliver his people just as the prophets foretold. But but how this would happen, how this would come about was a major question that was being debated in the first century. They, They had debates. The religious elite, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, they debated about these things. How was, the, how was this one that they were expecting? How was he going to come? What was he going to do? Most Jews believed that some form of national repentance and purity was necessary before God would deliver his people, before he would send his Messiah. And at this point in time, when Jesus shows up on the picture, 
the sect known as the Pharisees believe, they, they actually believe this, that if the whole nation can keep the, the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, if they can keep the Torah for a single day, God would send a, his deliverer, his Messiah. So the food laws become essential for national obedience. But keeping these food laws has huge consequences because food marks boundaries. Jewish elders developed a tradition, their, their traditions, layers of laws that, that they built around the law, around the Torah, in order to protect people, protect the Torah, protect it by keeping people from breaking the law. And they believed that by adding these traditions, they would be able to keep the law and God would send his deliverer. That, that was their hope. But these laws went beyond the scriptures. They said more than the scriptures say. And, and Jesus addresses this in a, a couple of chapters later in Luke chapter 11, verse 46. Jesus says, um, He's talking, he's been invited, here he's been invited to another meal. He was um, asked by a Pharisee to come and dine with him. And Jesus has this very direct and what would be an awkward dinner conversation with, with this Pharisee. And one of the things that he says here in verse 6 is, Woe to you lawyers also. Woe is a kind of a bad term, right? It's, it's like... Um, Life is not going to go well for you. So Jesus is in this meal and he's, and he's having a conversation with these, these Pharisees and he says to them, whoa, it's not going to go well for you. All right, this is, this is a problem. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people down with burdens that are hard to bear and you don't do anything. You, don't, you don't, do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You don't do anything to help people bear these burdens. You put the burdens on them, but you do nothing to help them bear those burdens. These are the traditions that Jesus is addressing, right? They've added burdens to the law. They've surrounded the law to protect the law so the law won't be broken. And in doing so, they've added burdens that the people can't bear and they don't, they don't do anything to help them. And Jesus rebukes the teachers of the law. These laws about ceremonial washings and how to prepare and cook food, they mark boundaries. They determine whether you were inside or out. Keep them and you were in. Fail to keep them and you were excluded. You were outside. You were shunned. So why am I giving you this history lesson? What, what, is it, what does it matter that the Jews are so concerned with protecting God's law? Why, why does that even matter? Well, meals are or became a form of external righteousness for the Jews. One of the most important questions that Jews asked in the first century, and this is mind-blowing, we don't ask this question, but one of the major questions that they asked was, who can I eat with? And we, we don't understand this. 
right? It seems to us like a silly question. Who, we're not likely going to ask who, who, who can I eat lunch with, but who will I eat lunch with? You know, we're, we're thinking about all the people that we could have lunch with. There's no borders. There's no boundaries, right? We, we have freedom. But to a Jew, your dinner partner or who your dinner partner was, that was a theological question. No Gentile would prepare food to Jewish standards, and so Gentiles were taboo. They were reviled by the Jews. Jews viewed Gentiles not only as outside the covenant, but unclean. They they wouldn't even eat with a Gentile. To eat with a Gentile made you unclean. And the result was that the food laws, these very food laws, they were an, an external form of righteousness that made boundaries, that cut people off. We see this attitude of the Pharisees in our passage this morning. The tax collectors in chapter 5, the tax collectors were traitors to the nation of Israel because they were collecting taxes from Israel's citizens for the occupying nation, Rome. And the Jews hated the Romans because of their occupation and because they were Gentiles. And here Jesus was sharing a meal with these traitors to the nation of Israel. And to share a meal means fellowship. It means that you're aligned with, in agreement with. To share fellowship with Roman Gentiles was for the Jews the height of betrayal. This is is what the Pharisees thought about the tax collectors. The tax collectors that Jesus was eating with. But but it's not only the Gentiles that are excluded. In in Luke chapter 11, um, verses 37 to 40, that same passage that we were looking at, Jesus um, is invited to another meal and he commits a major faux pas, right? Like a, he, he, he messes this up really badly. So I'll, I'll just read verses uh, 37 through 41 um, from chapter 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms. As alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus is invited to this meal, commits this major faux pas by failing to wash his hands, and as a result, breaks these purity laws. Now, the the ceremonial laws, they were intended, again, they were a tradition of the elders. They were intended to protect the laws so that the people wouldn't break God's law, God's Torah. And so the Pharisee who invited Jesus is blown away. He's astonished that Jesus, who is 
a well-educated or he knows the scriptures, he's astonished that someone like Jesus would break this kind of law. And Jesus calls this man out for his hypocritical practice of external cleanliness, cleaning up the outside while being full of greed and wickedness on the inside. This is bourgeois religion. This is rich man's religion. This is, this is, the, this is the religion of, of ease. When you have a lot and, it's, it's, and life is not difficult and you can do what you want, that's the kind of religion that the Pharisees have. And that's the kind of religion that Jesus is criticizing. The poor live in such squalor that they can't afford. They, they simply can't afford to have clean water around and all of, the, all of the entrapments, all of the things that are necessary to keep these laws. They can't even afford them. And the religious elite have made the law impossible for poor people to keep. And Jesus condemns the teachers of the law and their religious elitism by saying, you burden people with burdens that are hard to bear and won't lift a finger to help them. Brothers and sisters, religion, this religion makes, of the Pharisees makes people outsiders. Their boundary markers exclude. And this is what formal religion does. It sets bars. It draws lines. It makes borders. It excludes. That's what formal religion does. The religion of the Pharisees excludes and ostracizes. It looks at the outside of people and judges them by how they measure up to their rules. But in the pride of their religion, as they stood there judging the tax collectors, they're standing there making their complaint to Jesus, and they're calling these tax collectors and these sinners, they, they believe that they're unworthy recipients of the kingdom. While they were doing that, the Pharisees are missing something vital. They're totally blind to it. What are they blind to? The fact that they don't measure up. They needed a new kind of righteousness. In every epic story, there's always a glorious twist. I think this is just how you define an epic story. There's always this glorious twist. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the White Witch of Narnia doesn't realize that there's an older magic that exists that, will, that is older than hers and will turns, turn Aslan's glorious sacrifice into a glorious salvation. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the evil Sauron fails to consider that he could be undone by the smallest, most insignificant member of the fellowship. Likewise, the Pharisees missed the most obvious and crucial information that they were no different than the very people that they judged unworthy of God's kingdom. As our text reads, Jesus comes to, to 
heal the sick. But the Pharisees don't realize, they don't know, they don't understand that they are as sick as the tax collectors. They need heal just as much as the leper does earlier in this chapter. They, They need forgiven just as much as the paralytic does earlier in this chapter. They are traitors just like the tax collectors. And they must come to Jesus broken, wounded, the broken, wounded, sick people that they are. The Pharisees got it wrong. They believed that purity came through keeping the laws, or more specifically, from not breaking the laws. But notice what happens in Luke chapter 5, just going back a couple of verses, Luke chapter 5, 12 to 13. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. When Jesus touches a leper, what happens? Well, in the Old Testament, anything that a leper touches becomes unclean, whether that's a a saddle or a piece of cloth or a person, whoever touches that leper or whoever that leper touches becomes unclean. However, when Jesus touches the leper, the opposite happens. The leper is healed and the text says he is made clean. Look what happens to the paralytic a few verses later in chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. On one of those days, well, I'll just, I'll just summarize it because it's a little long. The paralytic, come, we all, most of us probably know this story, but the paralytic has four friends that take him to Jesus because they believe that Jesus is able to heal this man. And, G, and, and the text says that Jesus, seeing their faith, says to them, son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, you know, be healed. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And later on, in order that the Pharisees are kind of balking at this, and they're saying, who has, who, who can say that? Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And so Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, says to them, well, which is easier to say? Son, you know, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. And so in order to prove that Jesus had the power and the authority to forgive sins, he says to the man, take up your bed and walk. And then what happens? He takes up his bed and walks. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. The paralytic goes away from this encounter with Jesus forgiven and healed. He is truly cleansed. He is clean. Jesus knew that his biggest problem wasn't that he was a paralytic. His biggest problem was that he was a sinner. And Jesus, when he touches people, he leaves them clean. He takes away sin. An encounter with Jesus heals, it cleanses, it changes the person from a sinner to the saint. And this is not external religion. 
No, these men and women are changed at the core of their being. They leave their encounter as different people. They went to Jesus one way. They came back from seeing Jesus a different way. They were different people. You might not be able to tell it by looking at them, but you'd know it when you talk to them. We've seen three realities. First of all, that true righteousness or being truly clean means that you are clean on the inside. Second, we see that when Jesus touches a person or speaks a word, that person is cleansed. Jesus truly cleanses and introduces a new kind of righteousness. Third, it's a righteousness that is given, not earned. And third, people must recognize that they are sinners, that they are broken, that they need healing. And as we will see this, or as we'll see, this can only happen as people experience God's lavish grace. So what does any of this have to do with meals? Well, to begin with, we've seen that the religious exclusion that characterized the Pharisees, we've seen that religious exclusion that characterized the Pharisees. We've observed that Jesus' opposition to their practice of making themselves pure. Jesus, he, he opposed their external religion. But Jesus doesn't just oppose the Pharisees, right? He he isn't just standing up there preaching against the Pharisees. He has a totally different approach. He has a totally different methodology. Meals are the places where, well, maybe not the places, but meals are places where people experience Jesus and are changed. Meals are are places of acceptance, places where relationships are built, places where people are welcomed, places where healing occurs. Meals are places where people experience fellowship with Jesus and are changed. Meals are places where grace happens. And as Jesus shares meals... He turns the religion of the Pharisees on its head. So let's look at four ways that meals, or three ways, I think, that meals are parables of this, living parables of this grace. So a parable, just by way of explanation, a parable is, it's a story that is meant to convey a point, right? It's meant to convey, convey one big idea. It can, it can communicate other things, but a parable is a story to help us understand a point. And meals are like a parable. That, that's what I'm trying to, trying to say here. When we have a meal, what we're really doing is we're acting out a play. We're living. We are, we are a living embodiment in a meal that we share with somebody of God's grace to us in Jesus. 
When we share meals, that is a place that we can live out the grace that we've experienced, the grace that we have come to know in Christ. I want you to go away from here thinking of meals differently. I want you to go away from here thinking that or understanding that a meal is a place where I can show and talk about the grace that God has shown to me in the person of Jesus. So the first thing that we see is that in these meals being living parables of grace is that meals are inclusive, not exclusive. The Pharisees' religion excludes people. We saw how it excluded Gentiles and poor Israelites These people couldn't keep the law, either because they were cultural outsiders or because they lacked the resources. We we also see it in our passage this morning. The scene is a great feast that Levi, the tax collector, who has just been changed by by his encounter with Jesus, is throwing for anyone who wanted to meet Jesus. That's the scene. A great feast. Levi has had a dramatic encounter with Jesus, and the result is that he throws this party. Can't you just hear Levi saying something like this? Yo, Tony, I want you to meet someone who's really changed my life. I'm not just saying that either. I'm a different person now. Come to my place. I'm having a barbecue tonight. You don't have to bring anything. I got it all covered. Just bring everybody that you know. You won't be disappointed. The food is going to be great. And this Jesus guy that I met, well, you won't be the same. He's the real deal. Can't you just hear Levi? I don't know how he would have talked. First of all, he wouldn't have said it in English. He would have said it in Aramaic or something like that. But can't you just hear him? I mean, this is not a passive feast. You don't, you don't serve quiet. This is a feast. It's a great feast. Levi is doing this out of the overflow of his heart. Something's happened. He is pumped about this feast. Levi is stoked about Jesus. But notice the difference in wording between Luke's description of the people that Levi invited in verse 29, and the Pharisees' description or view, what they say, actually say about these people. Luke describes the attendees at this great banquet as tax collectors and others. Right? That's, that's what the text says. Right? There's this company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And what do the Pharisees say? The Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, it's, maybe, maybe that doesn't seem like a, a big deal to you, but the Pharisees view the tax collectors and these other people that were gathered there with derision. They look down on them. They judge them. These are, these are people that they consider sinners outside of God's grace. God's covenant doesn't extend to them. God's mercy doesn't extend to them. And the, and the, the, the contempt almost drips from, from the pages. 
Maybe you're wondering, why are the tax collectors, or sorry, the Pharisees, why are the Pharisees even there? They seem to be at this meal. Why are they even there? Who invited them? Did, maybe, did they get invited? Or are they unwanted guests? The difference between Levi's response to Jesus and the Pharisees' response to Jesus is light years apart. The Pharisees exclude and isolate. They judge and condemn and do nothing to help. In contrast, Levi opens his home, prepares a great feast, and welcomes people, and he even welcomes his enemies. I don't, I don't think he would even consider the Pharisees as enemies anymore, but, but they were, and he welcomes them. The, the Pharisees are there because Levi has invited them. Levi has been changed by Jesus. He has experienced God's grace and kindness, and it has changed him. He has been received by Jesus, and in return, he extends the same welcome to others. Brothers and sisters, that's, that, that, that is what happens when you encounter Jesus, you go away changed, and then you want to introduce everyone you know to Jesus. Now, there's all sorts of things that get in the way. Fear, fear of man, pride. There's all sorts of sins that, that get in the way that make that difficult. But the desire of a man or woman or child who's been changed by Jesus, who has truly encountered Jesus, is to welcome others. This meal, then, is the embodiment. It is a living parable of God's friendship to Levi. This is, this is not a small thing. It's not just a meal to Levi. This is, for Levi, this is the overflow of his encounter with Christ. He gets it. He understands Jesus' mission strategy. Not because Jesus told him. Jesus didn't come up and say to Levi, okay, now that you've changed, this is what you need to do. You need to start by throwing a huge party and inviting everybody and then tell them about me. Jesus didn't say that. Levi knows Jesus' strategy because it oozes out of him. It's, it's the result of encountering Christ. Jesus, just like Jesus' strategy to welcome sinners, that's Jesus' strategy. That's all it is. Welcome sinners. I don't, he doesn't have anything more. There's no, no playbook. You know, there's no big thick tome that, you know, Jesus has that he's going through with his disciples. No, his strategy is welcome sinners and call them to repentance. And when Levi experiences this invitation from Jesus, his re reaction, right? Our action should be to welcome, welcome sinners at meals. And Levi's reaction is to copy Jesus and welcome sinners. He's doing exactly what he ought to be doing. Levi's no longer an outcast. Grace has brought him home and he simply wants to see others included in the kingdom. The religion of the Pharisees excludes. It draws lines, borders, 
It tells you that you're in, whether you're in or out. But when Jesus welcomes sinners, the net is wide. Anybody can come. You can invite anyone. You can invite a prostitute on the street corner. You can invite your atheistic neighbor, your homosexual neighbor. You can invite your brother-in-law who thinks he's a Christian. You can invite your banker. You can, you can invite your grocer. You can invite the farmer guy down the road. Like the, the, the net is wide. Another major difference that we see in this text is one of attitudes. We read in verse 30 that the Pharisees grumble. Verse 30 says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're upset that Jesus has done the unthinkable. He is eating with the enemy. To share a meal means you're in agreement. We've already said that. That that you're on the same side. After all, you don't eat with your enemies. The tax collectors had betrayed the nation, collecting taxes for the Romans. Jesus is sharing a meal with them. That means he's in agreement with them. He's on their side, supporting them, fellowshipping with them. But notice the response of Levi. What is his attitude? Levi is characterized by joy. His response to his encounter with Jesus is to throw a party. The one guy here that I think is always ready to throw a party is Dwayne. Right? And I would say one, one quality, one trait, uh, one identifying mark of Dwayne is that he is full of joy. Anybody that knows Dwayne would agree with me on that. Anybody that is ready to throw a party is full of joy. That, that's, that's why you throw parties, because you, you are a person who likes to be happy. In fact, um, this, this same thing happens, this throwing of parties or this joyful response to the work of God in a person's life, it happens in other places. We won't look at these texts, but in Luke chapter 15, we have three parables about things that get lost. There's a lost coin, there's a lost sheep, and there's a lost son. And in all three of those, the end or, or the, the final response is this joy. The woman finds her coin and she is rejoicing. The sheep is found and the shepherd is rejoicing. The lost son comes home and the father rejoices. But, I don't know if you know the parable. There is another son in the, prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son. There's an older son. And the older son is not rejoicing. The older son refuses to go into the feast because he's so upset that his scoundrel younger brother is being celebrated. His brother, who stole half his father's possessions, has come slinking back. He can't be trusted. He knows him. He's wasted his future 
He's worthless. Just like the Pharisees, the older brother is angry. He resents the grace that his father has lavished on the delinquent son. And that is part of the problem as well. Just like the older brother, the Pharisees had no category for grace changing someone. They didn't believe that, that, that changing somebody on the inside was even the problem that needed solving. They were so concerned with external righteousness, but grace changed Levi. Just look at the evidence. And grace will change everyone who truly encounters Jesus. Joy and feasting will always be the byproduct of lost people coming to Jesus. On both sides. The lost people and God rejoicing and you rejoicing as lost people are found. Meals are places where we can celebrate and rejoice at the grace of God at work in the life of sinners. Meals. Meals. That's the place where we can rejoice. Final, um, yeah, there was a second point there that uh, didn't get up there, feasting, not fasting. The, the last point that I want to um, draw our attention to is grace, not religion. What happens at this feast is really remarkable. And I've reviewed all of the, or I've said many of these things before, but I just want you to think for a second with me about, about the, the, the dilemma that the Pharisees find themselves in. So for the previous 2,000 years, Israel has been God's chosen people. And in these verses, we see Jesus... God's son, the very one who planned with his father to make Israel into his chosen people. This Jesus is sharing a meal and fellowship and agreement with people who are working against, who are enemies of Israel, who are oppressing Israel. That's the, the Pharisees' dilemma, and it is a real dilemma. At one level, they're right to ask what is going on. Why would God work directly against his people again? And I think there's only two possible answers to this question. Either Jesus is an imposter, right? Like he's, he's pretending to be something that he's not. Or God is doing something totally new. And it's the second one that's true. And we see this right in the following verses. In uh, in chapter 5, verses 33 to 39, and one of the, something that I'm doing as I'm working through this text, and I'll, just, I'll, I'll be transparent right now, when I prepare a sermon, when I'm writing or preparing to teach, I'm always looking at the context, right? I'm looking at the verses immediately before and the, and the verses immediately after. Those things... What happens before and what happens after influence and shape and actually help us understand what is going on in the text that we're looking at. And that's all I'm doing this morning is looking at what has come before and what's come after. And then we're trying to, and, and we're using those passages to help us understand the text. 
So just reading verse 33 and following, they said to him, these are the Pharisees, again, who are talking, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it into an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new garment and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts a second parable. No one puts wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. What Jesus is doing is so different that it's like trying to sew a new piece of cloth into an old garment. You wash it and the cloth shrinks and the garment is wrecked. Or it's like putting new wine into old wineskins. The new wine ferments, gives off gases, and because the old wineskin doesn't have any stretch left in it, it explodes. In both cases, the result is destruction. The destruction of the garment, the destruction of the wineskin, because the old is incompatible with the new. The Pharisees are still drinking the old wine. And as verse 39 says, no one after drinking old wine desires the new. They don't want what Jesus has to offer. They're still trying to keep the law, practice their religion, exclude people who don't measure up, and they are angry with the Messiah and the grace, this new Messiah and the grace that he offers. God is doing a brand new thing. The old ways of keeping the law are past. Jesus is introducing a new way to be righteous. It's called grace. Let us throw off the shackles of religion. The only thing that God requires is faith in Jesus. He makes people clean. He makes people righteous. He forgives sins. Rejoice. Rejoice at that. Rejoice over God's lavish grace. That's all you have to do. I, I, I can't say that enough. Right? Maybe you're wondering this morning, where's the application? <laughs> what are we supposed to do? I haven't really told you to do anything. Well, the application is really simple. And there's only one. Rejoice. Rejoice in what God has done for you. That's it. If you don't know what God has done for you, then by all means, come up afterwards and I'd love to talk to you about it. If you don't know joy, then by all means, come up afterwards. I'd like to talk to you about that as well. The, the fruit, the result of encountering Jesus is joy. Not not some kind of blissful happiness, but deep-seated, abiding joy that knows that you are accepted and right in God's eyes and you are part of God's family. You probably thought I was going to tell you to throw a party, didn't you? Well, if you know Jesus, 
then you know what it is to have your sins forgiven, to have your burdens lifted. You've tasted real joy already. Remember that. Go back to that. Nothing else matters. There's, there's, I mean that. There is nothing else that matters. There's nothing I can add to that. Just remember what God has done for you and it will produce wells of joy that spill over and infect everyone else. If you truly rejoice over what God has done for you, then I don't need to tell you to have a party. You'll want to have a party. Take this message then as permission. No encouragement to throw parties and invite everyone in. And if you do this, you will be living out the title of this sermon, Meals as a Living Parable of Grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that your word sets us free. We thank you that your word makes us alive, that it brings us to a place of understanding of our sins. And Father, we thank you that, that in Jesus Our sins are forgiven. We stand right before you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that your spirit would fill your people with such a a joy at that knowledge that it would spill over into this city, into our neighborhoods, into our supermarkets. Father, into the lives of the peoples that we rub shoulders with. Father, we pray that your love for us would would result in our love for our neighbor. We ask these things in Christ's name.